0: Hello everyone and welcome to another Scotsway podcast. And tonight I'm joined by writer Joe Donnelly. Hello, Joe. Hiya, thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure. Pleasure. And um, we're going to be talking about your book, Checkpoint, um, How Video Games Power Up Minds, Kick Ass, and Save Lives. Um, that's quite a title. <laughs> and it's coming out on um, it's published by 404 Inc., but as we were just chatting before we actually started recording. With everything that's going on the kind of details of that are a little bit up in the air is that right?
1: Yeah yeah it was supposed to be launched on the 8th of May so uh, two days from when we're recording this and uh, yeah, the, the current situation has kind of changed things and we're, we're hoping for July uh, at this point um, but actually I'm just kind of taking things as they come because nobody really saw the the current circumstances uh, coming, so yeah, it's it's coming this year, and it's coming not too not too far away. So looking forward to it.
0: Um. So I, it's a it's a fascinating book. I really was um unsure how it would relate to me because it's obviously in large part about video games. Um. But it's also a very personal story, your own personal story as well. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the book?
1: Yeah. So. Checkpoint, um, which we'll just refer to as Checkpoint from yes. here on because it's a wee bit <laughs> of a mouthful uh, without like, the addendums. Um, so yeah, it's a narrative non-fiction book so naturally there's a lot of me in it, there's a lot of my story and it is also looking at the kind of wider context of both video games' mental health, how the two overlap and how powerful a uh, tool for relay information and telling stories and enlightening in many ways that the medium of video games can be uh, again framed by my own mental health experiences. I've played video games for pretty much my whole life. I was born in 1986 and my first taste of video games was through the Atari ST which was the first family computer that my dad brought home from the Barras in Glasgow and games like Lemmings by uh, the Dundonian games developer, DMA Design, who eventually became Rockstar North, who Mm -hmm. made a game series called Grand Theft Auto, which I'm sure a lot of people, whether you're into video games or not, have heard of. Uh, But yeah, I got into video games at a young age, played all through the console, eras, Nintendo, Mega Drive, right through to PlayStation, Xbox and PC. And in my formative years, I was an only child, so there were some times when it probably doubled up as companionship, just playing (laughs) uh, with my mates and playing on my own. But it was always a means of escapism, which I know that video games are for a lot of people. And even in my younger years, when I didn't have too much to worry about, it was just nice to escape anything, even if it was homework on a Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening, rather. To just jump into a game of Tomb Raider or whatever I was playing at the time. And when I left school, I had kind of toyed with the idea of getting into video games journalism. I really enjoyed all the stuff I had in the magazines, but I didn't really feel like a real job at the time. Yeah. So I became a plumber and gas fitter. And whenever I'm retailing that, I always try and fit in some sort of Super Mario joke, but it always <laughs> sounds really cheesy. So I just leave it now. Um, but that's what I did when I left school. And I started that in 2003. In 2008, my uncle took his own life, unfortunately, for my family. And I and it really, as you can imagine, whether people have got experience of family members in suicide or not, it's quite a, it's quite a big one for the family to kind of, of get their head around. And again, at the time, uh, I had my girlfriend and my friends and my family were all great, but I used video games as a real means of escapism and a coping mechanism in many ways. I just kind of threw myself into the games I was playing at the time just to escape the kind of, you know what reality meant at that moment and in the years that followed i struggled a little bit with my own mental health i kind of went through some depression and anxiety and at first i didn't really know what it was because i'd never experienced that it's not something which um men generally deal with very well in the uk and particularly in scotland and particularly in the west of scotland which where i'm from Uh, and apart from struggling to identify it once i was able to kind of tell these feelings but right i struggled to speak about them And in the meantime, I was playing a lot of video games and I started to discover um, video games which were exploring these themes and themes such as suicide, depression, anxiety. And I never knew these things existed in video games. A lot of people think that video games is just FIFA, it's Call of Duty, Battlefield, it's Football Manager. And these games are essential for for the ecosystem of, of video games, but there are loads of independent games which are... Tackling these really interpersonal themes. And in the middle of things, I decided to have a career change. I studied yeah. journalism at university. I got a degree and was freelancing for a number of places, a lot of specialist outlets, such as PC Game or Eurogamer, Games Radar, some places like The Guardian, The New Statesman. And I was writing about video games and mental health as they overlapped as, as much as I could. I eventually had a column for vice about video games and mental health exactly that the games which are exploring these themes games which people uh, were telling stories about um games that helped them kind of cope with similar things that i'd went through and people had used them for escapism whether or not they were directly dealing with issues of mental health that they'd use the games in that way and um i did that for a while until vice had a restructured restructure they changed their, their um the way, that, the way that they were laid out, and there was no room financially for the column anymore, so it got kinda ended prematurely. Uh, I was working for PC Gamer down in England full time, and in the middle of things, I was coming back and forth to my long-term girlfriend. She fell pregnant, so I came home, moved from the video games industry into football, and decided that I still had quite a lot to say about video games and mental health. Noticed at 404 Inc., the Edinburgh defendant publisher, which um, Checkpoints going through, as you mentioned at the top of the, the conversation, they had a submissions window. I submitted the idea and said I wanted to tell my story against my expertise in video games. And, yeah, they were happy to go with it. And here we are. Um, as I say, it was it was due to come out um, already, but it's July we're looking at. And, yeah, it's when you say all of that, it sounds like a really long and convoluted journey. It hasn't really felt as long in that, that time frame. It's about 12 years all in, I think. That's quite but a while. <laughs> um, yeah, Yeah, it's, it's been a long time coming, um, but it's been really good. I've, I've really enjoyed the experience of of writing the book itself. Unlike any of the columns which I did, which you know were generally a thousand to fifteen hundred words each time and exploring different facets of of video games and mental health, this has been a bigger undertaking, and it, it's caused me to, or it's demanded that I kind of dig a little bit deeper into my side of things. Um, right. In the middle of that, I. I forgot to mention, I eventually sought professional mental health um, advice from my GP and eventually a counsellor, did a bit of cognitive behavioural therapy, and um, was diagnosed with depression and anxiety disorder, and I'm now on medication, which I've been on for six or seven years now. Um, So I'm quite in tune with speaking about my experience and, and how my mental health has changed over the years and how I've struggled and I've managed to overcome certain things. But digging back into it for the book and revisiting things that I'd kind of forgotten about and stuff and and stories and quirks of different stories has been a wee bit harder than I thought it would. But I think that probably speaks to, you know, the the seriousness of the subject matter. So it's been good, um, cathartic and quite, yeah, I don't know, unsettling's too strong. But Mm -hmm. kind of getting back in touch with some of the feelings and stuff that... I'd kind of gotten over in many ways and I still feel confident and comfortable with, but yeah, an interesting part of the process which I hadn't really seen coming, I think.
0: It's such an interesting way to approach um, a conversation about mental health. And one of the theses that you've got is, at the beginning, you say that, you know, games perhaps over TV, film or books is a more immersive experience and that more immersive experience um, can uh, it has got benefits that maybe the others don't have is that right
1: that's how I feel yeah I think the kind of interactive and persuasive nature uh, which some of the, the book argues I think it's worth me saying I say this every time I'm talking about aims of mental health even in casual conversation conversations like this or, or even in the book itself like I'm not a mental health professional and um, I only know about mental health through the lens of experience and that's the point of the book the book does speak to people who are qualified professionally and know a lot more than I do but in terms of video games, specifically to relay information about mental health, obviously that's what Checkpoint does or Checkpoint explores. But even generally, I think that the fact that in more traditional um, media like books, like film, you sit down with a book, you read, you consume the information, and then you can go and do with the information what you want. The same with film, and, and it's not to, to pit any form of media against. Um, no other they're, they're all obviously crucial for, for their, own, their own reasons but video games require input and then you receive information and then you have to give more of yourself to continue things going one of the analogies which comes up in the book is if you start a computer game and put the controller on the floor pa- or put the put the gamepad on the floor and walk away nothing will happen nothing will change uh, until you put yourself into that um which i think is a, i think it's a good one because it means that you're always putting a little bit of yourself into the game or you're always, so you're putting yourself into the character that you're playing. Um, another analogy which comes up in, in the book is if you're playing Super Mario, for example, and, and Mario dies, you would say that you yeah. died. You wouldn't say that Mario died. You take on the role of the character you're playing. So I think when it comes to an information, um, whether it be you know getting a, a, a virtual sprite of an Italian plumber wearing red overalls from one end of a level to another, or a blue hedgehog for that matter, um, not any favouritism in, in the brands in the video game <laughs> spectrum, but uh, or you know digging into someone who might be talking about alcoholism or might be talking about obsessive compulsive disorder or anything which is a little bit more sombre in theme. Certainly, Um the, the power of video games to tell stories to convey information. Is is really strong, and I think that people that play games get that. People that don't don't necessarily understand that power, um, and it's not through it's not through deliberate ignorance. It's just it's just about maybe they don't play video games. There'd be a number of reasons why people aren't necessarily in tune with it. But books like Checkpoint are are designed to kind of I don't know, just show people how powerful video games can be, and in this instance, to explore mental health.
0: I mean, it's a fascinating book. I would never consider myself a gamer, um, although I am old enough to have had a pong uh, yeah, like, way back. But um, but then I thought, well, actually, that you know, because you set out uh, in the in the very opening, um, you know, think carefully about what you do. You play the games on your phones, and I've always played the ones that come with the phone. You know, sure, to get yeah. a, a, a tube journey or something like that. And then uh, when we were younger, um, used to play, you know, Defender or Frogger or Donkey Kong and all these kind of earlier games. And although I've never had a console, I guess your interaction with games, um, uh, it's, it's, it's something that if you don't consider yourself a gamer, if you don't say tonight I'm sitting down to play Grand Theft Auto, you maybe think this isn't going to um, appeal to you. But actually, a lot of the things, well, there's a few things. There's so many things I found interesting in this. As you say, it's specific games, and we'll maybe talk about some examples which are actually looking at um, mental health issues or, or addiction issues or things like that, or post traumatic stress disorder, which you mentioned in the book. But um, also, um, the way that, if, even if you don't consider yourself a gamer, there's most every chance that you'll have some uh, connection with uh, mental health issues yourself or someone you know. And so by discussing um, both in this way, you know, I think, I mean, I can remember a time, you know, for whatever reason, throwing myself into various books. And that was my, you know, that was where I lost myself instead of having to deal with whatever situation I was having at the time. Um, So as you say, you're not putting one over the other, but just you get such an insight into this, you know, your area of expertise, if you like. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting that you talk about how um, playing games went hand-in-hand hand with any therapy or, or medication that you were also on. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that, you know, um, uh, relationship came around?
1: Yeah, I think... Um, I think... <laughs> Mental health issues are so specific to the individual. Even if, even if someone you know, identifies that they have depression or they're told by the mental professional that they've got depression, someone else could have you know, an interpretation of depression, which is so, so different. The same with anxiety. Just to speak about one of the game developers that I speak to in the book, a guy, um, Matt Gilgenbach, who his game Never Ending Nightmares explores his experience with OCD, with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And I think that we speak about people misunderstanding video games in terms of a lot of people who don't play video games consider video games child's play. You know, that it is just yeah. those games like FIFA, The Call of Duties or any of the Fortnite is, is obviously massive at the minute. Games like that. Am, and this book argues that, and it's by no means the only book which does so, but it argues that there's more to, there's more to video games. And, and Matt Gilgenbach's game, Never Ended Nightmares, he explores his OCD. And a lot of people... And I certainly didn't necessarily understand OCD at any level. I've never, I've never um, suffered from OCD. You maybe will be at work or in the pub, or someone will rearrange a table and say, "Oh, that's my OCD." And it's kind of, you know, the, it's a, a kind of stereotypical view of obsessive compulsive disorder. And yeah. some people that have OCD, that is something which they do. Everything needs to be regimental. You know, they need to flick a light switch or whatever. These are these are definite traits. They've become overused and, and, or understanding in terms of how it's conveyed or projected in, in um, popular culture or in media or whatever. But Matt's um, manifestations of OCD are kind of images of self-harm, which are quite disturbing, but in his game, he has them in this really um, eye-catching, monochromatic animation style. And basically the whole game is it's like a horror game, but it's just tracking everything that goes on in his head. And that's a very specific example of how Matt's mental health has suffered. And I think in my own experience, um, I was just in a dark place. I was getting anxious. I was snapping a lot. I, wasn't, I generally wasn't the nicest um, person to be around. You know, you could appreciate that in hindsight. I was 22 when my uncle um, passed away. I was only just turned 22, actually. And at that time in my life, like most 22-year-olds in Scotland, I was going out clubbing a lot I was going to the pubs and I was as a touch upon in the book I was I was in hindsight definitely kind of overdoing that side of my life um than I necessarily appreciated at the time but it was easy to just put it down to oh, I'm just 22 years old and I'm going to the pub all the time in terms of how video games played into that uh, when I was playing more mainstream video games again it was just as a kind of means of, a, of escapism when I was playing games like like Matt Never Ending Nightmares or Will O'Neill's Actual Sunlight, uh, Zoe Quinn's Depression Quest, um, Van Der Caballero's uh, Papo and Yo. Uh, different games that were looking at different aspects of mental health and mental illness. So Actual Sunlight deals with depression um, head on. So does Depression Quest, as, as the name probably suggests. Matt's game, again, deals with OCD. Papo and Yo looks at alcoholism, which... It was interesting given the the parallels I may have been able to draw between kind of overindulging in that side as as a different kind of coping mechanism. But it was just, even the games which I couldn't relate to directly, they were taking me to different places that, you know, the average game would. It was making me consider things, some of which I could relate to, some of which I couldn't. But I really understood the game developer's message that it was something very personal. And it was striking a chord, even if not, you know directly relatable and um, when i started writing a bit more about video games and mental health one of the one of the best or most kind of heartwarming fulfilling things for me was that and again this kind of feeds into the being from the west of scotland being male and really not talking about feelings um which are not of enjoyment not of fun and a bit darker when i started writing about games and mental health i had some of my friends some of my closest friends kind of contact me privately and say Oh, I read your article on Vice about whatever game it was and, you know, about depression or anxiety, whatever. And some of my mates had been on courses of medication. They'd been on them for six months to a year or they'd been seeing someone, they'd been doing CBT. And they'd never mentioned it. And, you know, we're playing five sides once or twice a week. We're in the pub on a Saturday or a Friday. And for all in the most ideal world, you know, my mates might be able to come up to me and just say face-to-face or we're all standing with a pint in the pub and just saying, by the way, I've not been feeling great. That would, be the, you know, that would be amazing if we can't quite get there um, fr- from, from Go to be contacted privately and just have that conversation for them to feel comfortable enough to open up about it. That felt really nice. And I mean, it's not by no means that was, was, you know, I'm a hero in this, this circumstance. I'm going through my own stuff as well. But it was nice to facilitate that conversation through video games. So even if my mates you know, weren't necessarily playing all these independent games, which I was talking about, they understood video games, they understood their experience of mental health, and bringing those two together made them confident enough to talk about it. So that was really nice, um, whilst they were dealing with things which, you know, they needed a bit more support professionally, it was nice to be able to put something out there in the same way that these game developers were in their games.
0: Yeah, and that's, I found that fascinating that, there, that, you know, you mentioned Depression Quest, and that was... The company of myself. And you also talk about in um, Grand Theft Auto 5, there's the character of Craig. Yes. Yeah. So, so could you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so um Grand Theft Auto on
1: PC has this um is kind of probably the best way to describe it. There are servers which you can go on and role play, and essentially without bogging down with too much of the, the kind of the jargon and the lingo which goes with it. These servers are online servers independent of the main game and a lot of the role play ones exist. So basically, Grand Theft Auto V takes place in a state called San Andreas and a city called Los Santos, which is a digital pseudo-recreation of Los Angeles. And it's, even though the game's now, it came out on PC in 2015, it first came out at the end of 2013. Um, so it's an, it's an older game, um, but it looks, it looks great, especially on PC and kind of reflects real life and how it's made up. And in the role-playing community, people play the game, but they try and reflect real world rules. So whilst Grand Theft Auto generally is associated with, well, it's in its name, stealing cars and committing crimes, yeah. shooting people and all the stuff which the, the tabloid press love to sink their teeth into um, whenever yeah. they get the opportunity, uh, these servers exist for people to try and recreate real life there. And th- you mentioned the character Craig, I wrote for the The Guardian last year about a community that I'd found and it was just a, a small group of people who were playing in these role playing servers and some people will take on jobs they'll just live their lives as close to reality as they can and it sounds really weird, but it's it, it's quite it can be quite um it can be quite nice just to escape into these worlds where people aren't obsessed with you know the shooting and everything else and this group of people were meeting up in the game sporadically to talk about their mental health. So they're walking around Los Santos um, in these worlds where people are normally doing these really egregious crimes. And they were just speaking about experiences that they'd had and how their mental health had suffered. They were essentially using the world of Grand Theft Auto as this little support group. And I was able to share a little bit about my uncle. There was people talking about um, someone's mother had been an alcoholic and she'd been knocked down and killed. and. Ultimately, in these role-playing servers, the people could be telling stories, which you could be playing into a character, um, which which definitely does happen. But these yeah. stories were these stories were really heartfelt, and yeah, I mean, if therapy, if going to an actual medical uh, or a mental health professional is a big deal or a step too far, which it is for a lot of people, um, whilst I would always recommend, from my own experience, of giving it a try if you can, being able to jump into a game and just speak to strangers or speak to people that you know but you know exclusively in the game Um, I I still find that fascinating I think it's amazing I think that especially in a game like Grand Theft Auto which is so intrinsically tied to the violent side and and virtual crime where people can begin in there and essentially having therapy in the game I think that's I think that's wonderful
0: it's amazing and it was something that's really opened my eyes like a lot of the book did Um, and you do touch upon the kind of negative connotations that um, games uh, have in the kind of mainstream media. Uh, in some cases, they seem to have taken over heavy metal and video nasties as being blamed for uh, some terrible events. Um, but you do you do talk about that and and, and uh, the reasons behind it?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's it's a complicated issue, like how video games may or may not impact people. So without speaking about F dot one, it's and it's you know, in its most general sense, like, it is a game about committing crimes at its base and, and and kind of behaving nefariously in a game. One of the, and again, this is explored quite near the start of Checkpoint, one of the, the most common and probably familiar things about video games in terms of the negative slants, even if you're not interested in video games, is that, you know, they promote violence. And in instances like in America, if there's been a mass school shooting, yeah. and obviously yeah. that's horrendous for so many reasons, you know, it turns out that, you know, the killer was big into Call of Duty or was a big Grand Theft Auto fan or spent hours in front of World of Warcraft. We've all seen the, the kind of sensationalist headlines. And they're, they're hugely complicated each, each situation. It, it, to try and be as simplistic as possible, if, if it turns out that someone has committed a crime is under 18 as per, you know, the recommendation, be it in America be it the pan- uh, the pan-European information, um, game information system. In Europe, if they've been playing it before, the age which is specified, then there are issues there. And if you're 18 and you're an adult and you still think that the behaviours, i.e. You know, a school shooting, is still acceptable, then there's probably issues beyond the fact that you're, yeah, you know yeah. you play a lot of Grand Theft Auto. There's probably mental health issues there, um, but it's not quite as straightforward as when you mentioned video nasties and rock music and you know Eminem, the, the, the rapper, was probably a big one when I, when I was growing up. You know, um, I think it's very difficult to empirically prove whether or not video games had an impact on that. But at the same time, I mean, probably no more than Reservoir Dogs if someone was watching that in the '90s or even now or you know, a violent movie, or reading violent books, video nasties, whatever. Um, I find that in most of any of the tabloid stories that which I've read that that come down on video games, you know, there are a number of things to consider, uh, and I don't think that it's fair to pin that on video games completely.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, it's as with the other examples. If that's what you're blaming these things on, then you know you're looking in the wrong place. But you yeah. do have a, you do have a chapter on. Um, gaming disorder? Is it the World Health Organization that, that set
1: yeah, that up? Yeah, so they've um, in the in the past, we will, the, the World Health Organization have essentially identified gaming disorder and gaming addiction and they reckon that through which some of the voices in the book suggest is, um, it's early information so it's difficult again to empirically prove whether or not video mm-hmm. games are addictive because unlike unlike drugs, unlike cigarettes, there is nothing addictive in a video game that, you know, an addictive property that, that can get you absolutely hooked. It's um it's it, there isn't an inordinate amount of information out there to say that and in the in the research that I've done of course with some of the experts that I speak to in the book that, that can suggest that, that is um that is explicitly the case. The the disadvantage of the video games industry in general, even when you went back to Pong at the top of the conversation, I mean, that was only, it's only been like 50 years. It's not its not like any of the other uh, entertainment industries where you can really go back. It's a relatively young industry. Um, the thing about the World Health Organization is, and I i can see the arguments for and against. Um, I think that if, if someone is genuinely going to be consumed by addiction, be that video games or drugs or alcohol, Um, I think that appropriate measures need to be taken. I think that addiction is very complex. It's very difficult to explain. And and like we said about mental health, whilst addiction and mental health often overlap, it's very case by case. It's very idiosyncratic. Um, My worry about the World Health Organization, the way they generalise their interpretation of, of, of gaming disorder, is that for all its... One thing, the tabloid scam. I'm gonna. If you're not interested in video games, and I think this this especially applies to parents. If you're not interested in video games, you know who the World Health Organization is, especially yeah. at the moment and in, in the current circumstances. And if they come down on either side, it's an easier body to listen to. And my worry is, um, as someone who plays video games, and also as a parent, I've got a daughter who's she's only 19 months. She's already better at Sonic Mania by mashing the button with her fist <laughs> than I am. Um, but I will, you know, I'm not going to let her eventually sit. Um, I'm going to monitor her screen time, like I think all responsible parents should. But I want to show her how strongly I feel about video games. How I want to stress the virtues of the medium. I worry that some parents will see the health, the World Health Organization's recommendations, and all, and push a medium which they're not that familiar with further away from their kids. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so it's that that the, the whole spectrum of gaming disorder is still it's still in its infancy and there still will be a lot more um, debate and discussion. And there should be, like, I don't think that it's, I've, I've, not necessarily for the book, I've spoken informally to a lot of people who say, oh, and they completely rubbish it. I think that when it comes to addiction, it's such a complex issue that, yeah, you should pay reference to both sides. I, I do worry that the World Health Organization are making generalizations without the evidence to back it up at this stage. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes long term.
0: And also, I mean, you do, there's, there's quite a few um, a statistics in the book, and you were saying that the that kind of average age of a player, it isn't like a 14, 15-year-old, you know, it's more into people in their 20s and 30s that are actually the kind of folk who are playing the most.
1: Yeah, that's it, and I think, like, with video games in general, since I've started writing about video games, and certainly within Checkpoint, there are so many tropes and stereotypes around, you know, the kind of, the stereotypical gamer. so it's, yeah, it's a thirteen or a fourteen-year-old uh, male who lives in their parents' basement, and all they do is play role-playing games and they're into cosplay, and that's all they do. Whereas there are plenty of gamers who are like that and live wholesome lives. But um, it, it's so multifaceted, and like you were just saying before, if you've picked up your phone and played Candy Crush, for example, um, and there is a lot of there is a lot of snobbery within video game players as well i don't think that it's wholesome in any way in any medium be it in books film and you get that as well obviously tv um and anything i think if you pick up a video game be it on your phone laptop computer console whether you play 20 minutes a day whether you play 20 minutes a month whether you play six hours every single day i think that there's room for everybody uh inclusiveness could be better in video games without a doubt um and yeah like with checkpoint that's really the only thing i can control in terms of my contribution or my little corner of of the video game space but i think inclusivity is great in all walks of life and especially in video games if you can find joy or learn something new or have a vehicle for escapism then yeah i don't i don't know why anyone would want to deny another
0: person of that Absolutely. I mean, and you also talk about the importance of representation. I think, particularly yeah. with reference to the game Town of Light, is it? Yeah. yeah so that, was, that was a fascinating chapter. And do you do, well, maybe talk uh, about Town of Light in a second, but do you think that representation with uh, the computer industry and computer games being more modern than, say, other industries, particularly with reference to arts and culture, is representation better than you would say? Um, I think it's getting better. I think it. It depends
1: because if. So again, like the video games industry is quite. Um, it is quite young on the grand scheme yeah. of things. There, there's a game called Outlast, which released in 2013 by a game developer called Red Barrels, and it's. It is a, really really good horror game where the player is weaponless. It's first person. And they negotiate the environments, a lot of dark environments, and the only thing they've got to light up is a um, an old school kind of handheld camcorder, and it lights up certain areas. It's set in an abandoned asylum or uh, mental health institution, and the aggressors are patients of this asylum who have been. It's 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 loosely based on uh, the MK Ultra project, where there was um rumors of an institution where the inpatients were being tested or being um, used as guinea pigs rather to test different medications and this is this game kind of feeds into that and it is a great horror game it's really scary it's you have to think um, you have to think quite intuitively because you don't have guns like in other games but it really lets itself down because it probably could have been a brilliant horror game without leaning on you know, the metal health stereotypes. Sure. And that was only released about well, seven years ago now. Uh, and in a relatively young uh, medium, I suppose seven years is quite a long time. But I think that it, video games have made big strides in in the relatively short time that they've been around. Um, even going back to, well, that that was only seven years ago. All through the 90s, there was some games which really kind of played into those stereotypes. and trope. I still think there's a long way to go. I think that... The, the, the kind of stereotype and a trope of that mental illness is the unknown and therefore it's to be feared uh, is really dangerous and no matter what medium, is, is kind of peddling that misinformed trope. In video games, you're seeing it less, but it still exists. Um, and I think kind of feeding into what I was saying before about how positively I speak about video games in terms of the three-dimensional interactive process, if you're feeding back tropes and stereotypes, even though it might not be as prominent anymore, any of those games which do decide to go into that territory, it can accentuate the stereotype and the trope because of that interaction as well. So, in answer to the question, yeah, I mean, it's making strides, uh, but like anything, it could always be better, I think.
0: Um, What I didn't realise, I think what many people listen won't realise, is the amount of of academic and journalist... Uh, right, the writing that there's been on not just on the um, games, but on mental health, the the the, the um, reaction between the two or so, you know, the relationship between the two, I should say. This is a big topic.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, and one of the chapters which you kind of touched upon earlier, uh, we speak to, I speak to um, Alfred Skip Rizzo, who works in America, and he specialises in, in VR and virtual reality yeah. and, using, and it's all academically underpinned and it predominantly focuses on ex-service people who may be suffering from PTSD because they've been in wartime situations and with the, the PTSD which they're suffering from back in like the kind of normal world, he and his team use um, virtual reality as a means of re-assimilating people back into you know a kind of normal routine by revisiting some of the uh, the digital interpretations of of war zones but i think i think it's fascinating he introduces not just the visual effects but um some of the smells so some of the things he talks about is uh, you know, obvious well i suppose obvious things having never been to, to a war zone you know the kind of smells of gunpowder or things like that but even you've uh, seen about roadside bombs, where there might be you know areas where, because of the situation um with are locked in, in in war, you know maybe there's refuse lying on the side of the road, so that's been fed into the experience as well in order to help people remember these these um images which are obviously disturbing them and inside but better process them as opposed to just shoving them down or putting them somewhere out of the heads they've been forced to address them um slowly but surely with this 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 visual Representation and all of that stuff. Um, excuse me, Alfred Rizzo has been working in that stuff since the 1990s, when the first wave of, of virtual reality really came to prominence, and he's been working on it for 30 years, and they've been constantly bringing out white papers and academic stuff, which is underpinning everything they're doing. And yeah, I mean, it's again, that's one of the things, um, and well, one of the the number of things about a young medium, which makes it difficult that academic studies haven't had, there hasn't been an odd an amount of time to write something and then revisit in 30, 40 years to go back over yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but there is there is so much stuff um, which is uh, with people who who are much more qualified than me and really going through it and picking apart some of the tropes, some of the truth and formalising it in places where it can be, you know, this works, this doesn't work, this works, this doesn't work. And it really, it can dispel a lot of the stereotypes. It can also show how powerful the medium could be again as a storytelling medium.
0: I mean, I think the book as a whole, it seems to me, is almost about starting the conversation. You were saying, you know, how friends of yours or people you knew got in touch privately to say, well, a lot of the stuff you've written has, has meant something to me. And I, I was, you also say that, Uh, the mental health, um, everyone's mental health situation is individual. But like any conversation, once you start having it, you do get shared experiences. You also get, you know, your ones which are standalone and will only mean something to you. Was that at the heart of what you wanted to do with this book, was to get that conversation going?
1: Yeah, I I think so. I think um, in this day and age, and there there will be some people out there who... I would love if everybody that didn't or think or, or thought they didn't like video games would pick a game, any game that, that's out just now and just give it a shot if possible. Anything, a browser game, revisit Pong, anything that they can. Play Sonic Mania with your 19-month-old child and, and see how far or, 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 yeah, or you've come in the 90s or not. Um, I, I think that video games won't be for everybody, just like reading isn't for everybody. Um, but I think that in this day and age, people are more attached to video games as a medium than they realise. You know, if, you're a, if you're a hardcore gamer, or for want of a better term, then you will understand video games. If you're a casual gamer, you'll also understand video games. If you've played them on your phone, if it's just Candy Crush, if it's anything you've, you've got there, even if it's Sudoku on your phone, like that is a video game which you are playing. It's a digital okay. interpretation of a game you can play on paper, but it's still a video game. And I think that in the same way that somebody can lose themselves in a book like the example the example you gave or picking up an album and, and someone who's really into music and everyone's got an album that they can put on from the start and, and play it right till the end and they've got all these memories or associations attached to different songs. It's the exact same with video games and I think that mental health again like my mental health is very specific to me but video games have been a constant throughout that time and I do have I do have games that I sometimes revisit and it's maybe been a game that I've been playing when I was going through a particularly bad down spell and I think, wow, I've kind of forgotten about it. this level, reminds me of that, and it's maybe not so good or it's good. it is refreshing cathartic to go back and revisit it. I've got some games that, you know, if I'm ever feeling a little bit down, it'll pick up and I'll play them. And I think that that's more common than people realise. And I think that because video games are so relatable and we're getting much better at discussing mental health than we've ever been. I think that, you know, there's a long way to go about keeping that conversation going. I think that mental health, um, at the moment is unfortunately topical because people are being forced to isolate and naturally isolation is, is quite a big deal when it when it um when taken into the context of mental health, we're actually um myself and four oh four have just decided that I'm gonna this won't be in the ebook which anyone that, that pre ordered Um, is getting for free and then we'll also get a copy of the the physical edition because the the print date's been pushed back I'm going to do um, a little forward just speaking about the current situation because I think that video games and mental health a lot more people are playing video games at the moment Um, a lot of people are picking up video games who wouldn't normally pick up video games as well which is really interesting parents are playing video games with their kids because you know they're in a situation where we can't explore the the vast world outside, so jumping into a digital one is a you know it's a viable alternative um, for all the current situation is is really bad, and, and you know the, the health and wellbeing of the of the world is of paramount importance. But if people can escape into a video game where they can explore you know, cultural know landscapes as opposed to outside, then that's great. Um, but yeah, I mean, at, at a time when mental health is um, people's mental health has been put under strain. If, anybody can, you know, if anyone can find a new coping mechanism or you know, just dive a little bit more into video games than they did before, within reason, you don't want to get consumed by video games like some of the stuff we spoke about before. But I just think if there's you know, that black box underneath your TV, if you're feeling a bit down and you could just jump into anything, like a game of FIFA, or maybe a longer game of Minecraft or anything, then, yeah, I mean, why not? If you can make yourself feel a little bit better in these really trying times, and I think then... I'm all for that, you
0: know? Well, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Joe, thanks very much for chatting to us. It's been fascinating. And I have Thank to say, I honestly wasn't sure um, how I was going to take this book because I don't consider myself a gamer. But it's, it's so much more than that for a start. And yeah. uh, it's, it's an incredibly honest book. Um, you maybe answered this right at the beginning, but when you finished it, I mean, did it change the way you looked at uh, your, the, the things that you were writing about, your personal uh, um, stories? I think so. It's really strange because
1: naturally, and again, going back to the, um, the idiosyncratic nature of mental health, like my mental health story is my mental health story, and I was there. <laughs> you know, yeah. I loved everything, which which um, which is is written down in the book. I and I, and I spoke about my own opinion of um, seeking professional help. I think that anyone who is struggling absolutely should. That would be my message. In these conversations in the book and anything if you can within yourself go and seek professional help you should even in times like this when it's difficult to get out if you can speak to someone over the phone I know the Samaritans I've got really good service over the phone and a number of other charities or your GP or whoever can can chat family member friends whoever but I when I did CBT when I went to, to um, a counselor to, to seek help I got enough from it it wasn't exactly for me I know some people that have you know, starting a counsellor 10 years ago and they're still doing yeah. it every single week because it absolutely works for them, people will work out what works for them and while CBT wasn't, I worked out relatively quickly it wasn't for me, medication definitely helped me better uh, and I find the writing side of it quite cathartic I obviously was aware of my own journey uh, piece by piece but writing about it all together um, like I said some of it was harder than I thought it would be reliving some of the moments was, was quite challenging but yeah they definitely was a sense of um I don't know pride like that 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 maybe comes across as a bit strange potentially arrogant I don't
0: know being able
1: to look back and say you know they they were and there are people that are worse off than me but there were were some challenges to, to overcome and um whilst my mental health could always improve I feel like I'm at a place now where it's yeah I mean it's good it's stable and doing the book allowed me to Appreciate how far I'd come and not, I mean, without sounding like cheesy or corner or anything, if someone can read that and and relate to any part of it, you know, maybe if it, even if it is just, you know, for one, somebody you maybe have a bereavement and you felt really down after it and you're back on better footing now, if you can relate to any point of that in your own life through the lens of, you know, someone like myself who went through these trials and tribulations in terms of mental health, then that's, that's what the book's there for. It's, it's to look at two things that are close to my heart, how they came together for me, and how they might come together for other people, whether you realise it or not, I um, suppose. But yeah, I mean, it, it felt like, um, it did feel like a kind of sense of achievement, having written a book itself, and also, you know, having overcome the stuff which is which is in the pages.
0: Well, um, you absolutely succeed. It's a tremendous read. Um, thanks good. again for talking to us. I really do appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for allowing me to talk about um, things which are close to my heart. <laughs> I could chat all night. That's <laughs> what we're <here> for.
0: <laughs> and uh, we'll be back soon uh, with another Scotch We Hate podcast. Um, cheers.